text for today is from Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, he is risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples. He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy and ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. So a few months back, I, I came across this quote um, from a French Algerian philosopher. And don't, don't think more highly of me than you ought. I'm not like reading a bunch of philosophy. This was in an email that I subscribed to. And this was the one line. I'm not like reading this guy. But, it, but the philosopher's name, Albert Camus. And he noted that we must create. And then this is the line that kind of captured my imagination. We must create and live to the point of tears. Live to the point of tears. It's curious because uh, Camus thought that life was meaningless, but nevertheless worth living. That somehow in the midst of our, our life, our tears can help narrate life's worth. Our, our tears, like if you get something in your eye, uh, then tears can come. If, if your eye just needs moisture, like if it's dry outside, tears might come. But then somehow you can enter into this emotional experience. And emotion is just energy in your body. It's liturgy, energy in motion. Those are emotions. And it, it can register with that same reflex. They can help narrate life's worth. In other words, if we listen to our tears, they can help tell our own story. I don't know if you've had this moment where maybe you're watching a film or you see something or it's a child being born or whatever the thing might be and all of a sudden something wells up in you and it feels unexpected. It's as though those tears are trying to speak. And I know that Easter, generally speaking, has this buoyant kind of celebratory tone um, and in turn, any talk of tears that might be a little off-putting, but tears are not always negative. Isn't it amazing that our bodies have this biological release valve? Like if, if something becomes overwhelming, tears somehow become the place where our body is speaking even when our words can't. And so if you hear me talking about tears and you're like, this feels not very much like Easter, like Good Friday was a couple days ago, buddy, like don't you, don't you know what day it is? Um, just bear, bear with me and hear these words that my therapist reg regularly reminds me that tears are just moisture in your eyes. That's, that's all they are. It's okay. You can receive them. In, in fact, your body is telling you things through your tears. And if you, like me, have eternalized this message over the course of your life that tears are a form of weakness, uh, that t tears are, in fact, what it, it, they're saying something like, um, 
and you don't want to hear it, you need to mute that, you need to push that down. If you've internalized that as well, um, then perhaps this morning you, you might do well to receive the invitation that Camus is offering, to live to the point of tears. Because what if this Easter, God wanted to expand the horizon of what resurrection might include in your life? What if this Easter, it was more than just about an event some 2,000 years ago at a tombside in ancient Palestine? Like, what if God wanted to catch you and your life up in the grand story that is the resurrection, but the invitation was to live at the point of tears? It might just be surprising and upside down. It might just be like the kingdom of God. It might not be this triumphant celebration or entrance. It might just be what you least expected. And as much as I would like to live uh, and experience an Easter absent of tears, if you know my personality, if, if like Myers-Briggs, ENFP, or if Enneagram 7 with a wing 8, like any of that means anything to you, here's what, it, here's what it means to me. I don't like the negative feelings. I want all the positive ones. I've gotten really good at all of the bubbly emotions, and I want to just stay there. So an Easter, Easter's perfect for me because it's all about resurrection. But I've come to see that if I just experience Easter, starting at resurrection, then I, I risk reality itself. Because we don't always get our preferred future, but in Christ we can get resurrection. So I'd like to think that Matthew is giving us a gift today. The teaching text that we just heard read, uh, Tom Scholar, or, or Tom Wright, he, um, he kind of captures the tone of that text and he says it gives us a mixture of terror and delight. I like to think that that's the gift that Matthew is inviting us into this morning. Griefs, tears, and resurrection reality. And so perhaps this morning the invitation is simple. It's just to follow the apostle to the apostles, the two Marys, to that tomb side and to see what happens. So that's where we're going. We're going with the apostles to the apostles to Jesus' tomb. And so in keeping with this invitation to live to the point of tears, there's three themes that will guide our time this morning, very Eastery themes of suffering, fear, and desire. I'm just here to cheer you up today, folks. So to start, suffering. Look again with me at verse one of our teaching text. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. At dawn on the first day of the week, this morning I woke up, it was still dark outside, and yet when I look out my kitchen window, I can see the relief of the tree line behind our house. And, and it's, not, it, it's not quite light enough to be called day, or not even light enough for the sun to have risen. And yet if I went out, I can see the shadows of the world around me. That is the point at which the women, the two Marys, go out. Because before the resurrection story is about hope or joy or glory, the resurrection is about suffering. See, days prior to this moment when the women went out at dawn, Jesus was publicly arraigned in this botched trial. He was then beaten. He was then sentenced to death on a Roman execution rack. We know this as the cross. And Jesus died there. That's a Good Friday. 
And in order not to pr profane the Sabbath, there's a, a wealthy member of the religious ruling elite of the Sanhedrin. His name is Joseph of Arimathea. He pleads with Pilate, well, can I have Jesus' body? Pilate says yes. And so he goes, and we learn from another text that with Nicodemus, uh, another ruling elite, they go and they take Jesus' body down. They wrap him in linen, and they place him in a tomb. That then is Holy Saturday, but today we arrive at Easter, and yet again, before the resurrection story is about hope, it's about suffering. And what this all means is that Jesus' body was taken quickly and then quickly placed in a tomb. There was no time for Jesus' life and his death to be grieved. There was no space to contain the grief. So on the first day of the week, the two Marys go. They go to mourn and grieve the death of their rabbi and their friend. Because before the resurrection is about hope, it is about suffering. And really, what can we say in the face of suffering? There aren't really words. Consider the last funeral that you attended. Maybe it's closer, maybe it's further off. But my guess is you remember only a few, only a handful of the words. You see, a sermon, a sermon's purpose is to make this container whereby we might encounter the living God in the face of Jesus and then respond to it. The point of the teaching here is not so that you remember it on Tuesday and do the stuff I talk about here. The point is that you might encounter the living Christ and somehow mediated through God's word, something happens. That's the point of a sermon. It, it offers a container, but words, words at a funeral, they're not a container. They're these small contours that help us give shape to our grief. They're not the thing. They're hardly the thing at all. And in the end, words fail in the face of suffering. It's, it's for that reason that I have a special admiration for Matthew, especially on Easter, because what we hear with Matthew, unlike the other gospel accounts, is that the women, they simply went to look at the tomb. I don't come from a theological tradition that views God as the author of suffering. In fact, I think it's this really complex mystery, what suffering is in the human experience, but somehow, Somehow suffering has a way of like thinning out the noise in our life. It, 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 it brings us to the end of ourselves and there with the noise thinned out and at the end of ourselves, we encounter God. In contrast with these women, I'm, I'm reminded of how fickle my own heart is in the face of suffering. In the face of suffering, I, I do really well at a few things. I, I explain. I rationalize, I try and make sense. I use all of the gray matter in the front part of my skull to make sense of what's taking place. And Matthew confronts all of that because he invites us into this beautiful mystery that is just looking at the tomb. And if we're following these two women, that means that we're following the Marys who are bringing their suffering to suffering's end, which is in front of the tomb. And that begs the question, it's pretty simple, but where do you bring yours? Like when suffering is welling up in your life or it's in the story of your friends or your family, where does suffering go? 
Before resurrection is about hope, it is about that suffering, which means that Easter has something to say to our suffering. You see, I imagine that these women, they are like hewn out by grief. They're asking all sorts of questions like, how could it be that the God, the creator, the one true God could bleed when cut? How could the one true God cry out as forsaken or weep in sorrow? How could death possibly be God's triumph? Is there anything that we have that death cannot take? And if you feel like you have this uh, inner cynic, if you will, then perhaps your answer to those types of questions are like, well, apparently not. Apparently there is nothing that death cannot take. And so for you and me, for all of us who are trying to think our way through suffering, may we remember this morning that Matthew invites us to follow these women, to bring our suffering to suffering's end. He doesn't invite us to do anything but carry what's already in us to that place. And why? Well, because it's there, outside of our control, that we might just encounter some meaning in our suffering. There's this psychologist, David Binner, who talks about this. He puts it this way. He says, ultimately, we need a meaning that will be strong enough to make our suffering sufferable. We have so many ways of making our suffering sufferable. If you're like me, you learned some patterns of numbing. Uh, those things can easily come in form of drink or drug. When I was younger, I liked them both together. And let me tell you what, you, you get all the warm fuzzies, but those things are still lurking beneath the surface. I don't actually think they give what they promise. They don't make the suffering sufferable, they numb the suffering because they help you escape from it rather than face it. They lead you away from the tomb rather than to the tomb. Resurrection is about suffering, but not as a means of bypassing pain, but as Binner says, it's, it's to make our suffering sufferable. Pain in the wake of resurrection is this strange portal into God's presence. Could you imagine a world where you did not have to run from your pain, but pain was this, yes, painful, but it, it was an invitation to meet with God? See, there's this haunting line in the prophets, specifically the prophet Isaiah, that captures this tension also. Well, this is in Isaiah 53, picking up in verse 4. The prophet says this, Surely he, and I imagine that the prophet is talking about Jesus, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But listen to this. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Strangely, peace can be found in our pain. It is the pain that God in Christ has taken on himself. There is this weird kaleidoscopic vision that the prophet gives us, but in Jesus we find its clarity. On the cross, Jesus made a way through suffering by suffering. 
the cross, this is one of humanity's most gruesome death devices. You don't just die from loss of blood, you die from asphyxiation on your own internal fluids. It is gross and morbid. And if you've ever seen Mel Gibson's capturing of the passion, it's like somehow this strange, strange image. The gospel authors give it very little ink because people know the scandal of the cross. We want all the blood, guts, and drama, but they knew how gruesome this death was. That's why they sent people to say he was crucified. But it's there in that place of death that the cross stands as a witness to our pain. Because the cross tells us that protection from pain may not be God's highest end. And if you've ever heard that God wants to evacuate you from your suffering, that might be true in part. That, I do indeed think that is God's ultimate end. And yet in the midst of it, God says, I'm going to speak to you in your suffering by suffering. Because protection from pain is not God's highest end, but redemption is. Your pain, whether it is benign or acute, relational or personal, it can all find a home on the cross beams of God's redemptive story. Literally, Jesus in is stretched abroad, and there is the wide embrace of love. The cross confronts our accusations of God's absence in our suffering. Instead, God speaks to us by suffering. It's, it's remarkable. If you follow in John's gospel, Jesus encounters overwhelming suffering through rejection. He, he performs these series of signs, which are meant to point to the goodness of God. And in the face of those signs, there's just more controversy and than there is gratitude. He attends these major religious festivals and he begins pointing them back to himself and it just results in envy and criticism. By John 10, the rejection is overwhelming. Jesus offers himself as the good shepherd who's willing to lay down his life for his sheep and sacrifice, but he's rejected. He offers his life in all its fullness, and that too is rejected. He offers access and protection, but his leadership is rejected. The leaders literally reject his life by picking up stones to kill him. Jesus is rejected. He suffers deep rejection. And so the cross means that God can even be found in our suffering. And I, I get the, the, the tension, not to its full extent, but I get the tension of God suffering. It somehow puts in a blender all of our understanding of who God is. But just consider this with me. If God did not suffer, if he was immune to suffering like oil and water, they just don't come together, how then could he relate to the world that we inhabit? Despite all of the advancements, despite all of the AI and the chat GPT-4 or whatever, like despite all of that, suffering persists. See, absent suffering, even if God understood all of the component parts, apart from suffering in a body, there would still be a gap. And so Jesus willfully chose to take up our pain, to bear our suffering in his flesh, to bear our suffering by suffering. And by some cosmic mystery, suffering and resurrection kissed that Easter morning. And at the tomb, we find that there is something death cannot take. But we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves here because resurrection is not just about suffering. Resurrection is also about fear. 
twice explicitly in this passage, the two Marys are told, quote, do not be afraid. Once uh, by the angelic messenger who breaks onto the scene with this earthquaking force and another time by the resurrected Lord Jesus himself. And what's so interesting about this phrase, do not be afraid, is just how often it's repeated in the New Testament. It's as though we need to hear this again and again and again and again. Do not be afraid. So fear, what is it? This is a, a kind of a gross re reduction, but fear is simply this. It is the anticipation of evil. You might say, well, well that's a bit heavy-handed. <laughs> like, really, the anticipation of evil? But if you were just to go and, I don't know, ask Siri if you're an Apple user, uh, this is what Siri's little dictionary would give you by way of, like, thesaurus for evil. Bad, wrong, immoral, sinful, ungodly, unholy, foul, vile, ignoble. I like that word. Uh, dishonorable, corrupt, depraved, degenerate, villainous, nefarious, sinister, vicious, malicious, malevolent, demonic, devilish, diabolical, fiendish, dark, monstrous, shocking. There's literally like 40 more words for evil. So somewhere in that, we can plot our fear. Fear is the anticipation of some villainous thing, of some sinister action, of, of some shocking event. Fear is the anticipation of evil. And in our fear, Jesus calls us to not be afraid. And unlike most of Jesus' speech, which is in uh, the indicative, that is, he's, he's talking about the way things are, he's stating facts, this, do not be afraid, is a command. It's in the imperative. In your fear, do not be afraid. Now, that is one of the most annoying statements in the Bible by Jesus. In your fear, do not be afraid. But let me just remind you that before the cross, Jesus is in a garden. And in that garden, Jesus literally has a panic attack. I'm curious what it's like in that space to be comforted by God's very personal presence because Jesus asks for the cup to pass and yet some resolve comes internally that the cup will not pass. It's as though in his fear, he too was commanded, do not be afraid. And so not only can we bring our suffering to the tomb, but when faced with fear, we can actually stare back at it. Uh, but, but how? Like, how do you face your fear? Do we just muster up the courage? Do we overcome with sheer force? I have somehow, um, it, it's like gotten into the algorithms that I love hyper-masculine men on these social medias. So I got like the top G, Albert, like, like uh, Tate, he's coming into my algorithm feed. I'm getting like Joe Rogan. Well, that one's because I listen to his podcast, but like I'm getting all these hyper-masculine men. And so they would say, conquer your fear by staring it in the face and then punching it. And there's something in me that goes, yeah, but like, let's get it. But Jesus has a different tone. And he, he presents this different, this quality, like the, an entirely different posture through the apostles to the apostles, the two Marys. There is a different option of how we might face our fear. And track this with me. First, the angel says, this is paraphrasing, do not fear. The one you're looking for isn't, is not here. He is risen. So in the face of their fear, this heavenly messenger points them to look to the one who can attend to their fear. 
And if you're tempted to, to scoff at this, of saying, well, it seems awfully simple to just point your fear at Jesus, well, let me just invite you to quiet your inner cynic down and just listen up. To point our fear at Jesus is to point our fear at the one who embodied love. And, and this is why this is critical. Because the Apostle John in his letters, he says that there is no fear in love. In fact, this love is the telos, it is the end. If you are a follower of Jesus or if you want to become a follower of Jesus, love is the end. And John will go on to say that in that place, complete or perfect love, it casts fear out. You don't have to drum up the energy. You don't have to punch fear in the face because love embodied in Jesus will cast the fear out. And so regardless of how you look at the world, be it theologically, primarily through a lens of with God or materialistically or whatever, we cannot escape the fact that fear, when we encounter it, it registers in our bodies. Our autonomic system, it comes on board. And I think as a gift from God, and we begin to gather resources, we, we maybe we flee, so we're gonna run away from the threat, or we adjust to the, the threat, we freeze, or we seek to neutralize the threat, and we fight. And these things are automatic. So whatever your MO may be, fight, flight, freeze, the way of Jesus commands, yes, commands a different response to fear. It is to receive to receive the limitations, to receive the disappointment, to receive the shock, to receive the sadness, to receive reality and reorient in love. I don't think you can like turn off your automatic response, but you can respond to that response by receiving, by receiving reality and reorienting in love, which means here, folks, this is crazy. That stuff happens in your body, which means that God is interested in your body. Let me just can we just pause for a moment on Easter here? Okay, the triune creator God, the community of eternal love, Father, Son, Holy Spirit has chosen to take up dwelling in you and in me. The fact that we're talking about this is insane. The, the creator God in you and in me? Yeah, receive and reorient in love to point our fear at the one who can attend to our fear, the one who embodied love. See, I came across this line from this philosopher named Dallas Willard. You may have heard me quote him like every week. Um, and it caught me off guard. He said, nothing irredeemable has happened to us or can happen to us on our way to our destiny in God's world. Now, this is a bit of a clunky quote. Jessica said, maybe you want to take that one out. I said, no, I like it. Let me tell you why. Because in, in our fear, we can say, no, in fact, there are things that have happened to me. There are things I have done that God cannot touch. But Willard is here reminding us that there is no cavern of your heart that God cannot with his love cast fear out. And what he's saying here is it's not for an ethereal other place. It's actually your destiny in God's world. Do you know that when Jesus resurrected, he did so in a body? That our ultimate destiny in Christ is in a body redeemed and glorified. There is nothing irredeemable that has happened to us. The resurrection is about fear because fear is meant to be stared down by love. 
To put it a different way, these two women are invited, they're invited, and I think we are as well, to face our fear with faith. Now, you might not really like me putting fear and faith next to one another because they've been politicized in an awkward way these past few years, you know, faith over fear. But I don't really see a way around it when it comes to the resurrection. Because in the midst of our fears, we are commanded not to fear, to receive reality and reorient in love. So the next question is, how? And then the obvious answer is something like, well, faith. You're like, ah, well, what do you mean, buddy? Well, let me tell you. If fear is automatic, faith is the practice of putting your trust and by consequence your allegiance in something or someone. And faith is not a distinctly Christian thing. Faith is a human thing. We all have faith. We all place our trust in something or someone to some end. It can be as simple as trusting that your car will start or that your friends will meet you for brunch this afternoon. We all have faith in something, in someone to some end. And faith is really fascinating because as I've experienced it in this like evangelical subculture we inhabit, faith can be presented as a zero sum game. You've either got it or you don't. But that's stupid. This is why I think that's stupid. Now, you don't have to agree with me. You can think I'm wrong and I might be. But when I was a new follower of Jesus, my faith was weak. Like I actually did not know if God truly loved me because I had this past record of my whole life that would like vividly come into my imagination. I had no idea. My faith was weak. But over the course of time, what I experienced is was love staring down my fear. Even if I didn't know how to language it at that point, that's what took place. And the fragility I had in my heart started to be transformed by love into resilience. My faith, in other words, was strengthened. So your faith is not something you either have or you don't, and then you're just hoping that that reserve of faith is good enough when life comes to an end. No, you grow in faith. We are transformed from fear to love by faith. That is this process of resilience, and it takes a lifetime, which means there's always room to grow into Christ, which means the resurrection is always good news. See, we all have faith. We all place our trust in something or someone to some end. Resurrection is about fear because resurrection commands us to reckon with a new reality breaking out in Jesus. And it's Jesus who then meets these women. And as they're clinging to his feet, he says, do not be afraid. See, faith is about receiving, receiving that resurrection reality right in the middle of your fear. It's about receiving that reality and then allowing it to speak the resurrection language of love to your fear. Resurrection is about suffering. It's about fear. And lastly, as we close, it is about desire. I want you to notice the words from the heavenly messenger to the women in verse 5. He says this. He, I don't know, the angel says this. I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. Initially, Matthew reported that the women went to look at the tomb, to behold it. But this messenger pulls back the intention of their hearts to reveal a deeper desire. And desire, desire is kind of squirrely like that, isn't it? 
Like we have the stuff that's along the surface, but then there's things deeper than what is on the surface. I like how author John Mark Comer puts it. He says, our greatest desires are often not our deepest desires. Or said this way, our strongest desires are often not our deepest desires. Our, our strong desires, they send ripples over the surface of our life, but there are deeper desires in the caverns of our heart. And when the African church father, St. Augustine, reflected on his life in this volume called The Confessions, uh, desire emerged as this sort of key for unlocking a blocked life with God. And, and if you grew up in and around churchianity, you might have heard, like, to fear your desire. Like, these things will come up in you, and you're like, be suspicious of those desire. But desire is a good gift given by God. A desire is like this engine meant to drive your life and give you an appetite for delicious food. And like I heard this morning, like egg benedicts or deviled eggs, like those things, like yes, glory to God. Desire, similar to an appetite, is a good gift given by God to appreciate the vibrancy and color of spring. Desire is a good gift. And yet, what happens when that desire turns in on itself or that desire is disordered? Well, that is where misliving occurs. According to the Christian mystic Thomas Merton, we live in a society whose policy is to excite every nerve in the human body and keep it at the highest pitch of artificial tension, to strain every human desire to the limit, and to create as many new desires and synthetic passions as possible in order to cater to them with products of our factories, printing presses, and movie studios, and all the rest. Now, you may vehemently disagree with Merton, or you might be exposed by that. It's all to this end that good desire misdirected leads to misliving. It's a way of life that is out of step with God's good in the world. And so perhaps the words that the heavenly messenger gave to those two women are meant for us as well. I know that you're looking for Jesus. Like in the caverns of our heart, in those deepest desires, perhaps there is something calling out from the deep for Jesus himself. And contrary to popular belief, desire can be misdirected, disordered even. And this is a really a hard pill to swallow if you think that your authentic self is designed in tandem with your greatest desires. In other words, like if you are your desires, if your greatest desire is to sleep with this person or be that person or become that, and then you're, you hear that those desires can be misdirected, that can be like a crisis waiting to happen. See, desire can be misdirected. And our greatest desires may not be our deepest desires. In turn, we need a story that will make sense of those deepest desires. We need a type of resurrection story that will make sense of this desire. And this isn't really uh, revolutionary, by the way. If you were to, I don't know, peruse the world religions and philosophy on the Wikipedia Express, which is kind of fun if you like doing that and you have time to give to it, um, you will find that people the world over are trying to figure out how the heck do I deal with my desire? What do I do with it? You could be like the majority of Buddhists who say, I need to get rid of all of that desiring because that's where suffering is bundled up, so I need to get all of that out of my life. But the way of Jesus does not say, get rid of your desire. No, it, it invites you to 
direct it toward a new reality, the emerging reality in Christ, or, or perhaps if you, you know, uh, buy into the secular myth that my desire, if I just give full vent to it, will then lead to my happy life, that if I eat, drink, and am merry because tomorrow I die, well, um, you are driven by and steered by your desires. But Jesus doesn't say that either. No, he invites us to redirect our desires in a new story. It's not detachment. It's not fulfill. It is to allow our desires to bear like an external sign, this prophetic witness to our soul's thirst for something beyond the tomb. And you may be here this morning and you might be in lockstep with the two Marys. You might be at the tomb, suffering in hand, waiting, hoping. You've come there to see Jesus. And let me just say, if indeed that is you, heed the words. He's not there. He's risen, which means that there is somebody who you can encounter in the face of Jesus. You can cling to his feet. You can run after him. And I love, this is like, they're given a direction to go and Jesus meets them along their way. Like, that's just how God is. Surprisingly on time, and yet in the midst of their fear, Jesus says, do not be afraid. In the midst of their desire for Jesus, he meets them there. Because resurrection wants to speak to our longing, to our deep longing, to our desire. I like how the spiritual writer Ronald Rollheiser puts this. He says, some of us are obsessed with beauty. Some of us are obsessed with finding a soulmate. Some of us are obsessed with sex. Some of us are obsessed with truth. Some of us are obsessed with justice. Some of us are obsessed with the energy, color, and pleasures of this world. But very few of us are obsessed or even much interested in God who is the author of beauty, sexuality, intimacy, truth, justice, energy, color, and pleasure. Resurrection is about desire because at some human level, God and union with him is what we truly desire. I'm willing to venture that all of your desires in their fullest color actually want something more. They want to be found and directed toward God, not obliterated. Please do not hear me this Easter Sunday saying, get rid of your desire. Please hear me saying, direct your desires. T -t Take stock of what is in you, and it might scare the crap out of you to realize what's in your depths, but God is not far from that. If it feels like suffering, remember, He is with you. He suffered so that He might make your suffering sufferable. If it draws out fear and dread, He is there with love to bear witness and stare down your fear so that He might direct your deepest desires to Him so that you could be satisfied Resurrection, and this might make you woefully uncomfortable, resurrection actually desires to give you your greatest desires, to truly live. Aren't we all just groping for life in whatever way is most readily accessible? Why else do we click on Instagram and 40 minutes later find ourselves in some sort of death scroll? Like, we want life, but we just, we, we give ourselves to what's readily available. And you see, we may not get what we want, but in Christ, we might actually get what we need. In Him, we have the one who knows our suffering, faces our fear, draws us into faith, and fulfills our desire. 
We can feel the sadness. We can live to the point of tears and receive God's comforting presence. The declaration of Easter is this, that he is risen. And in a church, you might be inclined to say, and that is quite the declaration. But to be honest with you, my hope is not in a declaration. My, my hope extends beyond the range of a declaration. I don't want to simply declare resurrection. I want resurrection life in the marrow of my bones. And my guess is that you do as well. You may not have named it like that, but maybe this language is here for you today. Like, Lord Jesus, may your resurrection be in the depth of my bones because I am dying, I am perishing, I am wasting away, but I need your life in me that says to my death that there is something you cannot handle. And so what I wanna lead us into is just a reflection on that. The suffering we're facing, the fear we're facing, the desires that are disordered. I've, I've come to really appreciate the language given by this poet and author around noise refugees. You're gonna leave here today and you're gonna be bombarded with noise. We're gonna sing songs that will be loud-ish. And so I just wanna invite you in the quiet hum of conditioned air <laughs> to make space for God to meet you in that, in your suffering, in your fear, in your desire to perhaps remind you that there is another way. It is the way of resurrection. And so I'm going to start simply with silence. I invite you, if you want to, you can extend your hands out in front of you as a posture of receiving. And I'm just going to guide us through for a couple of minutes. It won't be much longer than that. So Lord Jesus, we invite you to hold us as we hold this silence before you. Jesus, we desire for you to cultivate resurrection in the depths of our hearts. Would you make our suffering sufferable? For the fear that stares at us, we invite you, Jesus, now to hold down in love that fear, to cast it out in your name. For the desires that we carry in our body that perhaps over years and decades have brought havoc, would your abiding presence still the deep water of our hearts? We pray for your resurrection power in the midst of our suffering, of our fear, in our desires. Would your resurrection life course through our veins? Imagine now that God in Christ is, is moving toward all those things that came to mind. The suffering you face, the fear that stares you down each morning, the desire that is still misdirected. 
and imagine him with compassion in his eyes, moving towards you with love. And so church, may we become the people, may we become the place, may we become the ones in whom Des Moines tastes the fruit of resurrection life, who live to the point of tears and show life's worth. 